Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a, quite an inspiring guest. I think that we're going to be learning a lot, you know, going from tech to healthcare, you know, from the corporate, you know, tech world to really going at it and, and building, you know, uh, her, her own company. I think that you're going to all find this quite inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Stephanie Telenius. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So originally born in Ohio, and I know that you've moved a little bit also going to San Francisco eventually, but give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Well, I, I grew up in the Midwest where everyone had good values and we played outside. There were no devices. And so it was a, a fun upbringing. And then we moved out to the Bay Area well before tech kind of uh, took hold. And so uh, we lived in San Francisco and really enjoyed uh, the city and love the experience of growing up here. And uh, the city's changed a lot since I've been here, but uh, it's still a fun place to live. Then you eventually moved east, you know, when you went for your studies. Yeah, I went, I went to college and business school back east. So I lived in Boston for like, uh, like 12 years, uh, worked. And then you did your MBA and eventually you started your first company. So uh, how do you land on your first company? I was trying to solve, I was in the venture, I was actually at Intel in the venture space and I was looking at problems to solve and came upon uh, pharmacy benefit management and chronic disease as an area. And so started Planet Rx and we went public in October of 99. And then we were sold to Rite Aid. Uh, and then after that, I was, um, I was either going to start another company. I was actually interviewing with a couple of folks. And I ended up interviewing at eBay with Meg Whitman. And I told her I was likely to start another company. In fact, I wanted to meet her because I wanted her to be a mentor. <laughs> and then um, one of our my investors from Benchmark had introduced me to her. And I really had all the intentions of doing something else. And she convinced me to interview at eBay. And I realized that I could be an entrepreneur inside a big company. And then I stayed at eBay. I was there for nearly a decade between eBay and PayPal. And what is it like to work with someone like Meg Whitman? I mean, one of the most incredible leaders. Well, I have to say I've been really fortunate uh, to work with Meg and then Rajiv, the CFO at the time, and all the leaders at, at eBay and PayPal, tremendous people. And then same at Google with, um, you know, Larry, Sergey, Susan, Jonathan, like just tremendous uh, tremendous people. And I feel fortunate to have those experiences. They all like made me better and, uh, still stay in touch with many of them today. And Meg was a great mentor. Meg, um, in particular, having a woman in a leadership role and watching her, uh, you know, drive the company and build this legacy was, is incredible. And there you were running on 8 billion PNL. So, uh, that's quite a responsibility. Yeah, at the end, I, I was at eBay early and then I went to PayPal and built a lot of what is now public, like the PayPal merchant services business. Uh, after we acquired them, we scaled it off eBay and built mobile. And then I went back to eBay to do the turnaround and I was SVP of eBay.com, which was an $8 billion P&L. And I guess, uh, you know, what were some of the lessons, you know, that you took away? Because even though, you know, different companies, you know, still in the same segment, 
and uh, pretty amazing uh, companies. I mean, some of the biggest companies, you know, eBay, Google, PayPal. So from all these leaders that uh, that you were able to work with, I mean, you were mentioning Larry and Sergey from Google, the founders, Meg Whitman from eBay. I mean, were there any specific traits that they, or ingredients or patterns that you were able to see from them that they, perhaps, you know, like you got inspired and, 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 and that you really, you know, learned and, and you're like, you know what, if I run my own business, you know, I'm definitely going to implement, mm -hmm. you know, those, those things that I've learned from them. Well, I would say, you know, those cultures had a, a really high bar for high quality people execution and innovation. I mean, we innovated our way through problems time and time again, and it gave me a lot of confidence that you could solve problems that way. Um, I think the other big learning was that they changed the world. Um, you know, eBay ushered in economic democracy through its platform. I mean, there were people who made a living on eBay and they put their kids through college, through the income from eBay. They bought their homes. I mean, it was really remarkable. And I, I was just so inspired by that. And then at Google, we were really trying to improve the world on so many levels, like not only aggregating the world's information, but, you know, building things like Waymo and having an impact beyond just search. Um, and so I got the bug early on to, you know, do something that changed the world. Uh, but I, I think there were like more specific lessons around tech that I could apply to healthcare that I knew uh, needed to be applied to healthcare. So I, when I look, first started looking at healthcare, I realized that the consumer experience was really lacking. And I had, you know, the, the experience of building great consumer products and scaling them. And NPS and really focusing on the day-to-day -day usage of the product. I remember it at Google, Larry had this expression called the toothbrush test. If you if you didn't use the product two times a day, then it wasn't useful. And so when I went to healthcare, I said we have to build something that passes the toothbrush test. Um, and then the other the other realization was you can build platforms that scale to millions of users. I had that experience personally, but I also grew up in these environments where it really mattered that you scaled, that you had impact. And I mean, I remember at Google, like if you didn't have a product that scaled to hundred million people, it wasn't relevant. Um, so I had to unlearn a little bit of that when I went into the startup world, because you have to start small and scale very, you know, systematically. But when I, um, had the vision for Vita and understood how to build a platform in healthcare, I thought about scaling to 100 million users, scaling across channels, building something that um, wasn't bespoke for every channel or every customer, but really could scale. And then the the, the last thing I, I embraced um, from my experience at PayPal was that regulatory investment can be a strategic moat. There was a lot of infrastructure for trust and safety and regulatory needs that we had to put in place at PayPal that became a real strategic advantage. And I recognized that in healthcare, you had to embrace the system and the regulations and learn how to build uh, within it and around it. Now, there is two events that, uh, you know, kind of like came together um, and that were the final push for you to get involved and to and to and to launch to bring essentially be that to life now one is you know something that you encountered uh that happened with your father and then mm -hmm. another one is perhaps uh becoming uh entrepreneur in residence for Kleiner so how did these two come together 
in order to push you to, to bring this company to life? Well, I was working with uh, Mary Meeker on the Digital Growth Fund at Kleiner and working on companies uh, like MyFitnessPal and Nextdoor and Square and others. And I also, when I was at Google, um, my father had multiple chronic conditions and I was looking for a solution. In fact, I, I would have probably built Vita at Google. I was just really early in my thinking. And at that time, uh, Google X was not really interested in healthcare, but uh, I knew there needed to be a solution. So my dad had diabetes, obesity, CHF, COPD, and depression. And he had multiple doctors and he had, was on multiple medications, but nobody was looking at the underlying root drivers of these conditions and managing him day to day. And I knew there needed to be a platform with connected devices, with someone caring for him, talking to him, reaching out, looking at his stress, his sleep, his nutrition, his medication adherence. None of that was happening. And so I kept tinkering with this idea. I I had multiple prototypes and then eventually I actually shared it with two venture capitalists who are who were friends who were my first investors and they saw the the prototype and they were like you have to go do this this is amazing and by the way it brings together like everything in your career all your skills like it's a it's a platform it's a consumer experience you know how to scale a, a marketplace of providers and provide care to enterprises and consumers and and you've done things with a regulatory bent to them. So you really have to go do this. And and so it all just kind of came together, but it was a lot of little things that I did along the way to bring it to that place where um, a lot of, you know, it's like when you're building a brick wall, it's like you build one brick at a time and then all of a sudden it comes together and you realize how much work went into it, but it, it's not an instantaneous uh, type thing. And for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Vita? How do you guys make money? We make money by selling to large enterprise customers. So uh, we have customers like Walgreens and Cisco and Boeing and Prudential and Northrop Grumman. And we sell to, to them a multi-year contract and they provide it to their employees as a service. We also work with large insurance companies, uh, and we just won an eight-year Medicare or uh, government contract. And so we work with a lot of Medicare customers now, and uh, they provide it to their members. So we're either selling to uh, a, a large health insurance company or an employer, and then they provide it to their employees and their members. Now, quite an interesting shift here for you now, because uh, you were used to doing tech and now healthcare. So... How was that shift? And then also, what are some of the um, comparisons between one another? Well, uh, they both changed the world and for the better. So that's at the core of it, the most important thing. Uh, and then when you look at um, the lessons that I can apply from tech in terms of uh, building a product that has a high NPS, like we have an over an 80 NPS that really is used on a daily basis. We have the majority of our users using our app five to seven days a week. Um, and we've built a platform that scales. Uh, and then we've, you know, really done the work to make sure that we are HIPAA compliant and we have high trust certification. So a lot of the strategic investment around regulatory. So, you know, we've, they're very similar in the investment that you have to make to win in a category. Um, 
And then in terms of marketing and enrollment, it's also really similar in terms of uh, some of the direct-to-consumer marketing. Even though we're an enter- we market to enterprise customers, we do do a lot of direct-to-consumer engagement and enrollment. Uh, and so those lessons are very similar. Now, in this case, you know, like part of pushing this and, uh, you know, achieving that NPS, you know, nice score and, and all this, you need, you, you need the right people. So when it comes to really getting the right people and to building an amazing company culture, how have you guys thought about, you know, going about that with Vida? Well, you know, it's funny because I had exposure to the early days of PayPal and eBay. And so I had this, um, I had this sense that you just hired some great first 10 employees and then you all set the great example and then it all went from there and it was actually relatively easy to build culture. I, I, I think that was a false a falsehood in my mind. Uh, and once I got into building Vita, I realized, wait a minute, you actually have to be incredibly deliberate about culture and set values and align and spend time talking about the values and your values have, to, your mission and vision and values have to match to your business model, your customers. So we we spent quite a bit of time shaping um, our cultural values and making sure they really matched to what we were trying to achieve and how we wanted to operate. Uh, and we celebrate them. Like in, in all hands, we acknowledge people that are living the values. We tell stories around them so people really understand what it's like to be part of our company. Uh, and actually, we just won a very large customer. And one of the reasons we won was because of our cultural values, which I was sort of surprised by. Uh, but I think it's it's like a garden and you need to constantly tend it and update it and improve it. And you can't just let it uh, rest on its own and assume that it will grow. And obviously part of bringing all these people in as well is getting them excited about the future that you're living into. So mm-hmm. as part of that, how have you thought about vision and execution and to also putting it in a way in which everyone is rowing, you know, in the same direction. Well, so we, we've always been very clear about our long-term vision of eradicating chronic disease. We've been super stubborn on that vision and a little bit more flexible on the details to get there. Uh, but we're really careful about um, communication and OKRs, objective and key results. Like we've had OKRs for the longest time now. We we have top level objectives for the company, and then they ladder down to every team, uh, and everybody knows the metrics we're trying to hit. And we do a lot of operational process around making sure that we're on track. We do pre-mortems and post-mortems before launching a new product or a new customer. Uh, so there's a lot of process. I, I've, I've really learned to love process. It's, it creates transparency and accountability. Um, and I, we have a saying inside the company that, you know, you get 1% better every day than you're 30 times better in a year. And so we really aim to try to be 1% better every day. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of, either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process. 
whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in this direction, if you were to go to sleep tonight, Stephanie, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Vida is fully realized, what does that world look like? Well, you know, 40% of the U.S. has like a cardiometabolic d- disease, whether it be obesity or diabetes or hypertension. Uh, and it's even worse. Uh, it's one to two times higher in Black and Hispanic communities. So the vision would be that everyone's using Vita. It's embedded in the employee benefits that are offered by employers, as well as embedded in health plans. And it is the day-to-day uh, continuous care model for chronic disease. And obviously, I'm sure that you've had to share this with investors too, and you guys have raised quite a bit of money. How much money have you guys raised to date? About $200 million. And what has been that journey of raising that money like for a company like this? Well, it continues to always uh, surprise me, the, <laughs> the raising capital. Um, we haven't, we have, we've been fortunate. We haven't raised capital in a while, so we've been hunkered down and executing, which is nice. Um, but it's it's always a journey, right? When you start to raise money, uh, especially now with this new market in front of us, I think it's a different world. Before it was all about growth, growth, growth. And now I think it's about EBITDA and path to profitability. Uh, and so you really have to know what market you're going into and uh, how you fit the metrics that everyone's looking for. Uh, it's easier in the beginning when you're raising a series A or B, it's all about vision and the team. Uh, and then as you get to C and D, it's more about your metrics. It, it team also, of course, matters, but it's it's more about real tangible, you know, ARR and revenue and margin. And it, it's it, the numbers matter a lot more at a later stage. And obviously, when someone is giving you the money, they expect to have a seat at the table, right? And uh, and to perhaps you know help with the strategic thinking of the of the roadmap that you have in front of you now. In your case, you've sat in four different boards at the public mm-hmm. companies. So mm-hmm. tell us about effective board dynamics. I've been fortunate to learn a lot uh, on these public boards as to what works and what doesn't work. And I've tried to deploy some of it at Vita. I mean, obviously, we're much smaller, so um, we're a bit more agile and, and you don't have an, we don't, we, we just put in a place, a comp committee and an audit committee, but generally it's more strategic and focused on the customer. Uh, but really good board communication is vital. And then like having a relationship with board members and talking to them in between board meetings, making sure everybody's aligned. And if they, if people have outside, um, 
outlier views or they're, you know, they think something totally different than another board member and you're really trying to hear them out. It's important to listen and understand everyone's perspective and bring people together to have that really important transparent conversation. Uh, and then our, you know, our bringing our team and giving them exposure to the board and having them present. And so everybody knows everybody and we're having a, a really open dialogue, I think is really important. And in terms of as well, the um, scope and size of the operation, just so that the people that are listening to get it, you know, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything that you feel comfortable sharing? Uh, we're about 600 employees. So Series D company, 600 employees. That's amazing. Now, in this case, you know, when you think about the different life cycles that a company goes through, and you were alluding to the OKRs and you know, just the alignment, you know, with the team and the culture, the values. How, how do you think, you know, people should think like when it comes to scale, when, when, when really shifting and maturing from one cycle to the next, like how also do you grow? Because the Stephanie that is leading Vida today is probably not the, you know, the same responsibilities or the same, you know, Stephanie putting fires. I mean, I'm sure you're still putting fires nowadays, but different types of fires, you know, at a seed stage. No, so, so how, you know, have you thought about scale from one cycle to the next? And then also how did you rally the team, you know, around that too? Well, you, you're constantly changing. Uh, I think all of our leaders are constantly evolving with the scale of the company. Uh, and you have to recognize that and put the work in to do that. Uh, I mean, in the early days, I remember being in every pitch and designing every, you know, every Google slide or PowerPoint presentation. And now, you know, we obviously have a sales team that does that. Uh, so you really, your focus changes as you scale. It becomes more about people and process. Uh, but as a founder, you're constantly like, if there's a problem, you sometimes dive in deep uh, and really want to try to solve the problem. I, I encourage founders that as you scale the company that you have um, you either do every job or have some exposure to it before you hire the person that is going to be on your leadership team so that you really understand it. And uh, you have to be able to go high and go low and always be strategic, uh, but also get involved in the details where appropriate, but, but really know how to let other people lead. Uh, because as you scale, you can't do everything. So you've got to hire amazing talent, people that are better than yourself. And, um, and you've really got to make sure that you're having the right conversations so that everyone's inspired and has full clarity on what we're trying to achieve, transparency, uh, and is um, is also leading down, right? So that there's like clarity across the entire org. Now, one thing here that is that that really resonated, you know, and and that I thought it stood out is how how well you position yourself, you know, during the, you know, these different shifts that you were going from, from one incredible company with incredible leaders to the next. I mean, the people that you've been fortunate enough to work with, you know, alongside and, and also all the lessons that you've taken from that. How do you do the same now on the other way around where, you know, you're more the person that is looking to get people, you know, around you uh, and, and being at the right place to be able to find the right people? Well, Talent is everything, right? That's all we are is a group of people trying to make something happen. And uh, so you really need to spend a lot of time with people and make sure you understand uh, what their dreams are. It has to, I, I, I'm, 
I've always said it has to be a win-win. Like someone who's on your team, they want to be there because of what we're trying to do. And it has to be a win for them in their personal goals and their career. It has to fit with their life, everything. And I, I realize increasingly as a CEO, I mean, you're a servant leader, right? You're, you're a servant to the mission and vision of the company. You're a servant to your team, to your employees, to your shareholders. I mean, and your job is to make everyone around you better and, you know, constantly improve yourself so you can make everyone else around you better. Uh, and but we're we're all just here to at the end of the day, especially since we're such a, a mission and vision driven company, we're just so focused on achieving scale so that we can help more people. Now, one thing that uh, about helping people, you know, one thing that really is incredible is how COVID, you know, has uh, changed things, right? And uh, in the post COVID world that we live, I mean, before you you wouldn't even see like doctors or nurses, you know, and then in COVID, you know, like you would see them on the front pages, and now you know healthcare, you know, it has taken a different uh, shift, and there's people looking at it with a different light. Where is healthcare going as a whole, Stephanie? Well, COVID was a a real shift in the sense that everyone realized that telemedicine is here to stay. And increasingly, consumers are comfortable with, you know, asynchronous and synchronous care. I mean, we, you know, we have an app and people can talk to their coach on video through chat. We, we connect devices. There's constantly communication back and forth. Um, and so that has become the standard, even though it should have been the standard even faster than, than, it, than it has been. I think COVID was a real shift and there was like, like a a uh, 10 year probably acceleration in the in the service of of how healthcare is delivered uh, and a recognition that this is here to stay. So that's great. I think when you look at the future of healthcare though we still have some some big problems in the sense that it's um 20% of GDP, it's over 4 trillion dollars and we still really haven't solved some of the fundamental problems. Uh, so we can't we can't wake up in a world where it's 30% of GDP. That's a real problem. So uh, services like Vita lower the cost to care pretty significantly. And so we need more automation. We need more services like what we do. Uh, we need uh, more continuous day-to-day -day engagement with the healthcare system by consumers. Uh, and we, we need to redesign the insurance model. Um, and uh, there's a lot of work we need to do. And, and it has to happen because we, I mean, it, we don't really have a choice in the matter. And when you're building a company like this, that really impacts the lives of, of people. I mean, not only you're dealing with the challenges of, of, of really pushing a hyper growth company like, like you guys are doing, but then also you have the regulatory side of it. So how do you balance, you know, that, uh, that uncertainty that you encounter from both angles? We watch the regulatory environment uh, and we invest behind, you know, like, so we, we are HIPAA and high trust compliant. We, um, we've done all the work to be deployed from a government and Medicare perspective. Um, and in many ways, CMS is, uh, Medicare is a leader in driving change in the industry, which has been helpful. So you know, we follow everything they're doing. We try, we haven't really done it. We're too small to do like lobbying or try to influence some of the decisions, but we do work with leaders uh, at the ADA and others where we really try to influence uh, policy. And I think that's really important. I think more, more, in, more healthcare innovators need to come forward and have a dialogue so that we can solve the problem together. Now, imagine if I was to put you into a time machine, Stephanie. <laughs> and I bring you back in time. 
I bring you back in time to perhaps that moment where you were thinking about starting something of your own, you know, and before even you got started with Planet Rx. And, and let's say you had the opportunity of giving that younger Stephanie one piece of advice. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I guess the first would be patience is a virtue, which I don't have a lot of, but I'm learning. <laughs> be stubborn on the vision, but flexible on the details and hire the best people and uh, build a really strong culture and change the world together uh, and then put process in place and really try to get 1% better every day. Has there been, you know, as you have really developed yourself as a founder, because obviously you got to always keep pace with the, with the company, right? Uh, you know, in, in fact, you know, you see it a lot, a lot of times that the company outpaces the speed, you know, at which the founder is is capable of, of of keeping up with. So in your case, how have you gone about that so that you could go from one cycle to the next and really keeping track and, and pushing things forward? Have have there been any resources there that you've used or books that you've read or people that you've surrounded yourself with that have been very impactful in this journey? I read a ton. I uh, am always... Uh a sucker for like the new leadership books that come out. Uh, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Thank you for your podcasts. Uh, and I also am part of different groups like YPO and Aspen Institute and then other founder forums. So I'm always reaching out to other people that have been uh, in my shoes and asking them for advice. Uh, and, you know, also from a healthcare perspective, really trying to learn where uh, policy is headed. So we created a set of advisors and I have built mentors in the industry and in trying to understand uh, how we can influence change. So it's, it's multifaceted. And now there's probably a lot of people that are listening that are wondering, Stephanie, how they could reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Oh, that's easy. I'm just Stephanie at Vita.com. Amazing. Easy enough. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an honor to have you on the DealMaker Show. It's been wonderful to interview with you. Thank you for doing this. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.